0: Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Welcome, everybody, to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and tonight we are here for the much-anticipated debate, the round two debate between Professor David McQueen and Taylor from The Snake Was Right YouTube channel. I want to thank everybody for being here for this important debate on the fossil record best explained by creation, evolution, or young earth, old earth. And uh, specifically the first debate that uh, David and Taylor engaged in was specifically on the age of the earth, with this debate focusing in on the fossil record. David, Taylor, uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for uh, being here and giving us your time for this debate.
1: We're glad to be here. i thankful for my growing friendship with Taylor and
0: the opportunity to debate him on this important topic. Amen. Yeah, thanks
2: for having us as always.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to this one. So is the audience. And what I like to do, though, before we get into the opening statements and the debate itself is kind of just get to know each other a little bit. Now, you guys are obviously no strangers to this channel. You're both seasoned uh, debaters at this point. Uh, but you know what? Let's kind of break the ice. David, how you been? Taylor, how you been? Why don't we start with you, Professor McQueen? How you been? A little bit about yourself. Go ahead, brother.
1: Yes, I've uh, been doing well. I realized that each uh, time we debate, Uh, Taylor and I have to introduce ourselves to uh, new people. And uh, to give you a bit about my background, uh, I'm a professional geologist. Uh, Finished up my undergraduate degree in geology in 1974, but started actually looking at fossils uh, back in the late 60s where I was part of a a camp, a field camp. Went on to the University of Michigan to get a master's in geology, and then moved here to Louisiana in 1987 uh, to work on a degree in science education, which I finished in uh, 1989. I uh, have had the opportunity to travel to travel uh, worldwide to look at fossils and uh, rocks in uh, europe and asia and africa and so uh, i'm looking forward to uh, sharing with uh, taylor and the others on our uh, feed what we think the implications of these fossils are thank you donnie
0: professor mcqueen i appreciate uh, the introduction and i appreciate Uh, your time for tonight I do have in the description box all of the relevant links for Professor David McQueen where you can find his book as well as uh, the playlist where you should find over I think at this point 50 videos that he has done with us as our team geologist so thanks for that David and uh, Snake was right over to you thanks for being here how you been a little bit about yourself and your channels now that you got a uh, debate channel up and running go ahead
2: yeah. So, uh, I run the snake was right, uh, channel and, uh, just started a channel called debate cafe with my friend who's a, uh, debate coach. So we're trying to kind of do debate more as a sport. Um, but we also try to host, uh, conversations where that people actually, you know, try to understand each other and stuff like that. And, As well as more traditional debates but we try and um the way we're we're trying to be unique is kind of in the sporting aspect and stuff like that um so as far as my personal channel goes um well i am educated in molecular cellular developmental biology um and the the name behind the channel is a reference to the genesis story um which is basically that knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. And kind of the, the reading of the story as more of an allegory for awareness and knowledge coming with suffering, but also meaning. And so, um, yeah, I just take knowledge very seriously like that. And, uh, channels about, um, Confronting sometimes inconvenient truths, and I try not to toe the line of any side, so you'll I'm coming for the atheists as well um, so I believe in the that atheism is needs to start becoming more focused on what I would say is uh, atheist spirituality. I could explain that later, but that's a brief intro. To what i'm talking about
0: well taylor i appreciate that i appreciate your objectivity there and uh for people who want to see more from taylor check the description box and the relevant links should be there and taylor i'll add uh, the link to your uh, new debate channel as well okay so for the audience's sake let's go over the format for this evening uh as usual here it is going to be a formal we're going to have 15 minute opening statements both david and taylor Have an affirmative tonight, Fossil Record Best Explained by Old Earth, which is Taylor, or Young Earth, which is David. Then we're going to have 10-minute uninterrupted rebuttals, followed by a break. So this is where we're going to take a roughly uh, 5 or 10-minute break, and during that break period, I will go over some reminders, and announcements for everybody. Then we're going to have 30 minutes of free-flowing, open dialogue. We're going to keep it organic where the debaters, uh, David and Taylor, will be asking each other questions pertaining to the topic. Then we're going to have five-minute closing statements. And, of course, this is where we get you guys in the audience involved. We are going to have an audience Q&A, roughly 30 minutes. So please make sure you're tagging me with your questions at Standing for Truth, and that way I won't miss them. Okay, well, let's get right into the fun, uh, Professor McQueen, uh, my brother. We're going to hand it over to you, and uh, whenever you're ready, you have uh, a 15 minute opening statement, and as I seen, you got a timer as well. So, looking good.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm going to press my button here and get it started, uh, as I have done uh, in the past in all my debates. Uh, I have a a gift uh, set aside for. Uh, Uh, Taylor, a copy of Dr. Morrison, Dr. Uh, Wickham's uh, Genesis Flood, if that's a book he does not have. Uh, If he does have that book, then I uh, have a video that I have done on uh, Bible archaeology here in Louisiana uh, at a uh, site called Poverty Point. So I very much appreciate uh, Taylor and the seriousness that he uh, brings to this debate and the, um, also the um, uh, decorum that he shows uh, in the debate, it means a, a great deal to me. Here are my initial debate points, and we'll go over them um, in the next uh, 15 minutes. Our topic tonight deals with the issue of fossils, and whether uh, fossils uh, provide evidence for a young earth or an old earth. At the very beginning, I want to comment that I uh, am unapologetically a believer that the Bible is um, a historical record. And so as the two hours go on, I will present some arguments for uh, the historicity of the Bible, especially in regard to this matter of thousands of years. Since the evolution of of life is supposed to have started around a billion years ago, I'll use this as an argument of thousands versus billions. And my argument will be uh, three points uh, that I'm very interested in Taylor's rebuttal. The first point is that When fossils appear in the rock record, they appear abruptly. Second point is that in contrast to evolution, they appear fully formed and functional. And then my final point is that the uh, rock record of fossils includes fossils and stratigraphic units that are to be found worldwide. Now, why would those points lead to an idea that the Earth is young and that is the best way to explain things? Well, let's go to my first uh, chart here. Um, And that's the idea that the uh, um, fossils that we find appear abruptly. Uh, I have a delightful group of brachiopods here from the uh very famous locality in the central united states and these are fossil brachiopods that you can see in this rock uh limestone rock whenever you find these uh you find them appearing abruptly now what does that mean in regard to our uh, argument here Uh, they are found in sedimentary rocks worldwide and the other points that i want to make uh, about this is that when i see a group of uh, fossils like i just held up there or fossils that are the preserved remains of for example uh shells of clams or snails, plesciopods, gastropods, whenever they appear in the rock record, they provide evidence of catastrophic uh, deposition. Now, what do I mean by that and why would that uh, apply? I did field work several years ago in coastal Peru uh, looking for a variety of things, but one thing I found were a group of uh, of Plesiopod or clam fossils, that were a lot like this fossil here, and they were found closed. Why would their lower and upper shells being closed, why would that be an, uh, an argument for abrupt appearance or catastrophic sedimentation thousands of years ago, not billions? Well, if you've been to the beach and walking, you notice that you do see uh, plesiopods or clams, but they're ordinarily popped open. And so, when you see them, the uh, clam shells look look like this here, open, not closed. And that's because in the environment, the muscle that holds a clamshell too after it dies, very soon pops off. And so if you find beds of uh, invertebrate fossils like this, clams, uh, worldwide that are closed, not open, that's an argument for a young catastrophic uh, sedimentation. The other argument that I want to bring up uh, that indicates rapid burial is the whole issue of uh, soft tissue found in uh, dinosaur fossils. So if we look at, at my map of from National Geographic 30 years ago and where different dinosaurs are found in North America, uh, there you see T. rex uh, and Triceratops and so forth. The work of Dr. Schweitzer, beginning with her, has shown that this soft tissue can be found, uh, in the rock record. And that soft tissue, uh, can only be explained if you had rapid burial in a reducing environment, not an oxidizing environment. And so the fact that you find soft tissue is a objective scientific evidence that there's been a catastrophic event to bury that dinosaur, or it's been found in other, creatures since then uh, through time. So that's the argument based on abruptness. And now let's move to the second argument and that is of the fossils being found fully formed. Um, Now a fully formed fossil, the way I discuss it here, is a fossil that is functional when you find it in other words in my geologic work going back over the last 50 years i've never seen a transitional organism even though even though i have looked for it uh in my in my day in preparation for this taylor i went back to my copy of origin of species which goes back 40 years to one of my favorite uh, sections of, of the book um, and I want to challenge on this uh, point Darwin had a dream and here's a couple of sentences that dealt with his dream. I've now recapitulated the facts and considerations which have thoroughly convinced me that species have been modified during a long course of descent. Now, Darwin never clearly defines what he means by long, but he's beginning to think in terms far beyond what he'd been taught in college as a 6,000-year-old uh, Earth. As, uh, as he talks about this, he brings in all kinds of uh, uh, references, and the final sentence or the final paragraph in Origin of Species reads this way. There is grandeur in this view of life, having been originally breathed by the creator into a few forms or one. And then his final sentence says this, From so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful and wonderful, have been and are being evolved. Darwin's hope was that by the time you got to the hundredth year of the publication of 18. 59 up to 1959, that there would be so many uh, fossils found that the clear transitions would uh, go on. Uh, my discussion of uh, Huxley and uh, him being an advocate for Darwin, I'll save for later, I want to go on to SJG, Stephen J. Gould, and his punctuated equilibrium idea those of us that have argued with snake and others about evolutionary uh biology have argued that his idea of punctuate equilibrium which explains the way the transitional fossils that you would expect to find we call that a rescue device and i'm interested in uh taylor's view of that particular uh, point um The idea of fully developed simply uh, is a a focus on creation. And if you look at this, you see that the the fully formed is an argument for design. We're not talking about random uh, organization of fossils over billions of years. Even billions of years are not enough, as others on Standing for Truth have shown uh over the over the years fossils provide no evidence of evolution and certainly no evidence of an old earth because they appear abruptly and fully formed my third and final argument which i've got four minutes to develop here is the reason that fossils argue for a young earth is how they are found. You have the worldwide scope of the same fossil. And so when you uh, look at this from the modern creationist viewpoint, going beyond uh, Dr. Morris's work in the 1960s, published in 61, you come to Tim Clary's work on sequence stratigraphy. Now for tonight, for simplicity, I'm going to focus on only one of the sequences that are talked about by Dr. Clary and that's called the salt sequence. It's found in the western United States in the Grand Canyon in the lower part of uh, of that peach sandstone Bright Angel Shale area out there. But it's also found where I was educated in Tennessee in Tennessee but as you go to uh, the UK, to Wales, when there was one world continent, you can find those same fossils there. As a matter of fact, we'll discuss later on the Reverend Professor Adam Sedgwick, who would lead lead tours out to an area in Wales that were uh, associated with the Cambrian tribe. Now, as you look at these Cambrian uh, trilobites, Uh, And as I was preparing for this debate, I ran into an interesting dilemma. I had the opportunity with Ms. McQueen several years ago to travel to Prince Edward Island and uh, go down on a beach that maybe some of you have visited called Cavendish Beach. Uh, We enjoyed our time in Nova Scotia and we went across to Prince Edward Island. And I hope you can see against my white shirt that this is a red sandstone. So I said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge Taylor by going and picking up this uh, uh, sandstone from Prince Edward Island and then comparing it to some rocks that I collected back in 1998 in Seymour, Tennessee, which are part of the Rome Formation in which are found uh, fossil uh, trilobites. And so I was going to compare the I was going to compare the two, and in preparation for the debate, I looked up the evolutionary geology of this part of Prince Edward Island to compare it to the very similar looking rocks in East Tennessee. But you know what? The rocks from uh, Cavendish Beach are called Carboniferous or Permian in U.S. vocabulary; it'd be Mississippian. Pennsylvanian Permian, and these are called uh, Cambrian rocks. When they look so similar, why would they be called any different? Well, the key is the index fossil in there. And I'm going to argue that the index fossil argument leads to enormous problems in the evolutionary community as they attempt to explain fossils in an old earth context this worldwide distribution of fossils is an amazing thing and so we go from Cambrian rocks all the way uh, through the geologic column as it's called and we find these three things always true the fossils appear abruptly they feel they appear fully formed and they are widespread over continental areas that will end my first uh, part. Is that Did that hit close to 15 minutes,
0: Donnie? Right on the dot for the most part, Professor McQueen. I appreciate it. And uh, these opening statements, 15 minutes, really do fly by. So, David, thank you so much. Uh, Taylor, we are handing it over to you. And, and I'm going to uh, get my
1: clipboard we- out to write my notes on what you
0: say, Taylor. All right.
2: Okay. Doing good. Good to go. All right. And I'm going to sh- put up my slides. There we go. All right. So the young earth biblical flood needs to account for all stratigraphic rock layers, all fossils, every impact event, current continental positions, decay products of all radioactive elements, and the diversity of extinct and extant organisms, all in basically a single event. Um uh, today, we're just going to be focusing on fossils. I might use a little bit of geology to kind of support why certain fossils are found where, but focusing on fossils. Um, first up is the kind of just a, an overview. Um, focusing on the uh, the delicate footprint type fossils, um, originally made in mud, which would be destroyed by a flood global or local, Um, and they're found throughout the uh, geologic strata. So some of them would be happening uh, before the flood or during the flood, both of which would have been wiped out by the violent uh, Noaic flood. Um, And uh, many of the fossils found in between like during flood strata um, needed to form in arid desert-like conditions, Um, as well as fossils found in limestone and limestone itself uh, that deposits a maximum of, what is that, about six feet or two inches per year. Um, And so all of these are flood-averse features It must be somehow explained by a global flood, um, all while rocks are hardening in a single year underwater and being placed on top of each other delicately while during a violent flood. Uh, The next fossil set would be plankton. So uh, not only are plankton found separated by fresh and saltwater species, which would not be expected in a global flooding of the oceans, the biblical flood story would have to account for nearly 500 million years worth of planktic biomass existing all at the same time in a less than year period. So that's roughly 500 million times more than the world's current biomass of plankton, which replenishes about 45 times per year. So that's 45 billion tons of plankton per year. So... Uh, Going with the lower end of estimates, we would still have about 11.1 billion tons of, or 11.1 million times more plankton than we see currently. And uh, that ends up being um, about... You know, eleven billion or eleven million times a billion tons at the lower end, it's probably forty-five times more than that. Um, but eleven quadrillion tons of plankton um in one point four five quintillion tons of water, and that's about twenty tons of plankton in like an Olympic sized swimming pool, and that's on the lower end a more realistic, if you consider today's rates more realistic, that would be about 900 tons of plankton in the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Now imagine that sludge, and that would be the world's oceans if all of the plankton that's found in the fossil record existed at the time of the flood, which is claimed to have been deposited by the flood. So it would be, Noah would have been riding on an osha, uh, ocean of plankton, which doesn't make much sense because a lot of that many plankton would kill each other anyway. Um, so, on top of that, we have benthic or bottom dwelling plankton found in the upper layers of supposed flood layers, as well as lower layers. They're found throughout. Um, and that contradicts the idea that bottom dwelling sea creatures were buried first. Uh, as like a hydrologic sorting type situation. Um, There are evolving and distinct populations throughout the layers. And there is a smooth transition of planktic species as you go up and they smoothly transition into modern species. Uh, Surface dwelling sun dependent plankton, phytoplankton uh, are found at every stratigraphic level of supposed flood levels. So, Again, this idea that um, the Cambrian and Precambrian organisms being buried first since simply because they're at the bottom makes no sense because they're mixed in with plankton that are exclusively at the top of the water that would continue to float at the top of the water. Even if it was getting flooded, they would just get pushed further, but no, they get, they're deposited at the lowest layers and throughout. Um so it it shows that these things are not sorted by ecology they're sorted by time period. Um thirdly upright fossils or so-called polystrate trees are found rooted in mid-flood layers which means that they were growing it would mean that they were growing during underwater under uh lithifying layers of rocks during the flood um that's not really possible. And uh, being placed between strata with root structure intact by a violent flood is not possible either. This is um, similar to the delicate footprint fossils. There they are very delicate roots in place attached to the trunks of these plants. And so if they were not deposited by a flood. Um, finally, to go over... Basically, the claim that animals have no smooth transitions. They just suddenly appear in the fossil record. These are creationist accepted changes within the kind of the horses. So the horses did not show up with fully formed hooves. They had um, feet and they evolved. And this is according to creationism. They evolved structure to have one toe from four toes Um, These are the actual fossils, a comparison of the early known horses to the modern horses, and they have a completely different foot structure. So not only are individual um, systems within these animals evolving smoothly throughout this time period, Um, we can keep tracking it back. So the early horses resemble taper kinds, and there's a smooth transition from these mammals to the earlier mammals. We see smooth transitions throughout the fossil record. Um, Here I'm highlighting the evolution of the jaw, where we see uh, lamprey-like fish um, moving towards with progressive uh, complexity towards a fish-like jaw. And there are examples of this everywhere in between. And so you might say, well, it doesn't matter that these individual systems that are highly complex within the horses and the fish are clearly evolving in a smooth transition. The horses and the fish appeared suddenly in the fossil record. Um, Well, Well, I have a few more fossils left, but I'll finish that thought first. Um, No, there is a a smooth transition into fish as well. There's a smooth transition from mammals into horses. There's a smooth transition from uh, lizard-like reptiles into snakes. And we have fossils along every minute change that you'd expect we start seeing really long lizards with smaller legs and then we end up seeing really long snakes with tiny legs and there's a smooth transition between them even down as far as the cambrian and Precambrian, there is a smooth transition there is an abrupt diversification but again the diversification is still smooth because it's all variation On forms that we have smooth transition for all along the way. It's just that there's a lot more variations, but you can still see that they had clear predecessors all the way past the Precambrian. Um, All these animals show a smooth transition from the soft-bodied rangiomorphs to organic-walled animals that are Still, uh, filter feeders attached to the bottom. These are just variations on the animals that came before them. And this is occurring in a stepwise fashion. As rock layers become younger, then they start, they have the same, essentially, body plan, and they start hardening, um, but same body plan. And then we start seeing motile, Animals with very similar body plans like uh, worms and uh, things that resemble arthropods. But these are clear, deep variations on these animals that come before them in the fossil record. They're just now not stuck to the ground and are now mobile. And so... Uh, not sure how much time is left, but uh, we can put that into the discussion. Um, all these things are inconsistent with the Young Earth and Flood Event Series, and we see a conspicuous lack of what we'd expect, which is a mixing of marine and freshwater organisms. Um, we don't see organisms sorted by the ecology... Um, In a vertical manner, we see that we see different ecologies in the same stratum, but so this contradicts the um, the the proposed flood sorting of organisms. And we do see smooth transitions within the fossil record. Of course, there are gaps because not every animal is recoverable. Uh, Not every animal was fossilized um and not every fossil has been discovered but evolutionary science has been the only um hypothesis or theory that's been able to predict this pattern which makes it science by definition and um the uh, there is also we should expect um every and every animal to basically have been fossilized. If we have these um, rapid uh, flood burials that were uh, good conditions for fossilization, and we should expect ubiquitous fossilization within um, like rare limestone fossils. Um, And yet we don't see this. These are rare. And, We should see a lot more animals dead and fossilized, yet we do not see this. Um, And of course, I have theological questions as to why God would create uh, most animals just to kill them off. Um, I have questions about how these were created. Were they created in all at once? Were they created in a stepwise fashion? Because they're is clearly different forms of different populations in the pre-cambrian pre-flood zones of the rocks so i'm not exactly sure how a flood model explains any of this Um, going back to the beginning the delicate footprints the delicate rootlet systems of upright fossils um the incompatibility with the amount of plankton in the fossil record and yeah i suppose i'll uh i'll just leave it there
0: all right taylor with a minute to spare that we can uh, toss into the audience q and a so appreciate the opening statements from the both of you uh clear concise and 15 minutes as i always say flies by okay now we're moving into the uninterrupted 10 minute rebuttals. And, uh, we're going to hand it back to you, Professor David McQueen, whenever you are ready, you have 10 minutes. Okay.
1: Um, uh, I will start my timer here and, uh, begin to, uh, give a rebuttal to, uh, uh, some of the things that, uh, uh, that Taylor has, uh, has brought up. Um, I will say for our open discussion, his challenge about how could a good God have created so many creatures, dinosaurs, for example, and uh, all kinds of other uh, creatures uh, that just ended up being killed at the time of the great flood. Uh, That's a legitimate uh, theological point, but I want to go back to the science of what, Uh, he has uh, uh, started uh, walking down here. Um, Let's go uh, to his uh, point about polystrate trees. And I was fortunate enough to be working at the Institute for Creation Research during the time that Dr. Steve Austin was working uh, on uh, the trees that were torn down during the eruption of mount st helens and the formation of the lake uh, nerea and what dr austin uh, noticed was that um there was an analogy between the kentucky number 12 coal seam that he had worked on uh, at penn state he finished up his PhD when I finished up my master's in 79. And so these coal seams in, in uh, Kentucky, he had noticed evidence of the coal not having grown in place, which is called autochthonous coal. But he had saw it, seen that there was evidence that it was moved, aloxinous, like a lot of distance. And so... He saw an analogy between this and what he uh, discovered when he went scuba diving uh, after the eruption of Mount St. Helens in the mid 80s. And he found at uh, Mount St. Helens, when you go underneath the surface of the water where there's a tremendous amount of tree debris, as the trees became waterlogged, they floated upright. It's a legitimate modern example of the catastrophic explanation of uh, polystrate fossils. Um, So that's a critique of that part of what uh, Taylor had to say. Um, Let's go on to horse evolution, because when I took a class in evolution at the University of Michigan in the 1970s, Of course, horse evolution was considered part of the uh, uh, standard evidence for evolution. I, myself, have done work with a colleague in West Texas on a uh, variety of horse that um, is called, uh, get my board working here. Equus Scotti, lowercase S, and I've looked at these fossils out in West Texas, and have led tours of the Smithsonian over the years, and seen the Smithsonian's display of uh, the different uh, horse fossils, leading you know from multi to one-toed and and so forth, the kind of things that that Taylor brought up in in horse evolution. And I would challenge the audience to look at this and look at this in uh, more detail because some of the claims that Taylor just made that are made in most standard uh, evolutionary books are simply not true. Uh, You cannot find a smooth evolution of the first horse all the way up to the modern uh, genus Uh, of equus. There are inconsistencies in the um, stratigraphy of where the bones are found. And after the break, I'll get some references uh, for this for you to see. Another thing that he uh, talked about, which is fascinating to me, and during our discussion time, Taylor, I want you to go back to time mark 36, Uh, which is that uh, diagram you put up at the very end uh, about the uh, evolution of different uh, creatures through time. It's the diagram that you showed that has time going this way and then a number of vertical lines there and there and there. It turns out that this is a, fallback, a a rescue device that Taylor and others have used, based on Stephen Jay Gould's ideas about punctuated equilibrium. That each one of these uh, areas here, the reason you don't find Darwin's transitions between them is that it's punctuated equilibrium. Well, the creationist critique of this is very straightforward. You're not seeing any evidence here of uh, evolution, smooth or not. Rather, these are the predictions of uh, flood geology, the predictions of catastrophic burial, that whenever you find a trilobite, it appears abruptly and fully formed, and it goes up to the point of uh, extinction or burial by the next layer. And then the uh, reptiles and amphibians, the same way, and so the uh, diagram that I want him to bring up later on for us to discuss uh, with each other is simply a clear argument for uh, different species appearing abruptly and fully formed. Um, I'm fascinated by the very long time he spent in calculating the volume of plankton that might fill a Olympus Olympic sized uh, swimming pool, and his comment about how these particular uh, organisms are so numerous uh, that why do you not find the entire ocean of the Great Flood uh, filled with these things? Well, part of it we'll get into later. Catastrophic plate tectonics would say that much of the ancient sea floor is being taken down, including what might have been benthic and bottom-dwelling plankton, but his argument bears on a very important rock unit uh, that is the White Cliffs of Dover. The White Cliffs of Dover are are made of the uh, microfossils that he spoke about. How come, Taylor, that... Those same rock units from the White Cliffs of Dover are found in the Austin Chalk of eastern Texas. And if you go worldwide to uh, northern Turkey, uh, near the Black Sea, uh, Agar, uh, years ago, found the same units there. In other words, he called it persistent facies. How come you find the persistent facies? I would say that the very point you brought up argues for a young, rapid uh, burial rather than uh, an old an old earth. Um, <clears throat> you brought up uh, the issue of uh, limestones and suggested that modern data indicate that limestone is produced at perhaps two inches a year. If You and I were able to travel to the Bahamas. I could take you to one of the islands called the Andros Island. And it is true. We could walk out there and we could see a type of limestone that is called mickrite being formed. It would be soft. It wouldn't be hardened into the kind of limestone that I can show you later on. But we could walk out and see it. The argument from my standpoint as someone trained in chemistry and trained in geochemistry is that if you have the correct combination of uh, EH and pH and temperature, I've got some pH test papers down in my bucket here. See if I can get them out. If we were to go, Taylor, we could use this pH test strip here and we could check the pH of the water there in the Bahamas, the temperature, the amount of calcium carbonate that's in it. Um, Working with my colleague, George, over the last uh, year, we have uh, clearly shown that you can um, explain limestones by the variation of this chemistry. I'm at the end of my time, Donnie.
0: David McQueen, thank you so much for your ten-minute rebuttal. Uh, we're now handing it over to Snake. Was right for your ten-minute rebuttal, and whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Go ahead.
2: All right. So I, I did want to address the uh, Stephen Jay Gould uh, punctuated equilibrium. Um, his a lot of his comments are pretty outdated. They were made in the 80s, are um, so they're you know decades out of date. Um, there have been many gaps in the fossil record filled since then with different fossils. The more we find, the more the smooth the smoother the transition is. Um, and to address the idea of punctuated equilibrium, this is just talking about the idea that there is a certain morph or body plan, that evolves and then there are lots of variations of that during kind of the equilibrium time and then there are sporadic version sporadic variations where you might get a new body plan but most of the variation are just tiny variations of each body plan mostly it takes a lot of um, accumulation of different changes in order to get what seems to be a larger change in body plan so you have uh this is what we see in the fossil record this is kind of what darwin predicted as well where you have basically certain jumps in evolution which then vary so i guess if we're gonna we could pick uh dinosaur to bird evolution there would be, it would appear as if birds suddenly appear and then there's just a bunch of birds, but there's a smooth transition from dromaeosaurs into birds via fossils like Archaeopteryx. But then once you have these flying type dinosaurs, you don't have, you don't then speed past bird into something else. You just have a diversification of more birds and um, it, it's kind of arbitrary how you think of it because many birds are much more different from each other than a lot of birds are from dinosaurs. So, a swan, being uh, or a like a a stork, or a, what do you call those ones that have the big thing the thing under their chin and they they eat fish? They're much oh, different. different. Yeah. Pelican. Pelican. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then if you look at eagles and hawks or versus Kiwis and things like that, these are all radiations off of the bird body plan, which seemed to have been a jump between dinosaurs and birds, but that transition is smooth as well as all the radiations. So it's kind of arbitrary where you draw the line. Um, Maybe we could keep talking about that. Um, let's see the the dinosaur soft tissues. Um, I guess the claim would be that only soft tissues could only last up to uh, a few thousand years. Um, I'm not aware of any research that shows tissues can only last that long. Um, Tissues either are preserved or they degrade quite quickly. Um, Mary Schweitzer showed in her paper that, um, to quote it, when hemoglobin and oxygen were present, the blood vessels were fully inflated and there were no areas of collapse. No regions of breakdown were detected and surface texture was intact. That was after two years when usually tissues degrade Within weeks or months at the most, um, exposed, and without with just hemoglobin and no presence of oxygen, there was still some preservation. So, with her experiment, the rate of at, at best the rate of decomposition was zero. So we know that minerals like these iron compounds, goethite, uh, found in the fossils. Um, can preserve with no degradation. Now, neither one of us has access to experiments that run 4,000 years or several millions of years, but we do know that minerals can stabilize the chemistry of chemicals. Um, Of these uh, protein fragments, uh, mostly collagen were found And it's by a mechanism that would have been accessible to these large animals, which would be flooded with hemoglobin. Um, So, and we do know the age of the rocks they were found in uh, via radiometric dating. And again, this was the subject of our last debate. There's still no solution to the heat problem. And so therefore... It's much more scientific to go with the, uh, radiometric dating because if the radiometric dating is off, then we have a major heat problem and there's no earth at all. So it does seem like we know the age of these things. We know that they can be preserved with no degradation for several years. There's no reason to think that that can't be pushed even further. Um, And of course, there was very little actual tissues found, and Mary's experiment preserved the entire specimen, but the dinosaur soft tissues found were almost entirely degraded. So, obviously, with some preservation, it's not a stretch to think that that lasted that long. Um, As for why chalks are found all over the world, it's probably because there were plankton all over the world, and just because that I didn't hear any uh, refutation or explanation of the sheer volume of plankton that would be required um, based on the amount of plankton found in the fossil record um, based on current plankton growth rates. Um, And if we're going to say that they were created fully formed and functional, then it would be most scientific to go with the currently observed uh plankton growth rates and not some uh speculative growth rate that we have no observation and no science on um, and as for limestone the one you mentioned uh, it's is still different than limestones at the grand canyon some of which are were formed in dry and arid conditions um And I still didn't hear any um, rapid sedimentation that would be rapid enough to sediment out basically thousands of years or millions of years worth of limestone at current known deposition rates. So again, you'd have to speculate on some wildly unachievable by current methods, by any known methods, sedimentation rate. And you'd also have to explain how that happens in a uh, in under a year and multiple times and punctuated by rock strata that have to be formed in dry and arid conditions. And you have to factor in the the limestone having to be able to lithify and harden in between getting dumped mud upon over and over and, somehow forming more on top of that in between so we have inconsistent uh hydrologic sorting of minerals um and all that jazz uh how much time do i have left
0: good question you have exactly one minute and 20 seconds
2: um all right So I will object to the smooth transition of animals comment. Um, Obviously, there are gaps. But as far as we have so many examples, um, as far as the whales go, whales do not appear fully formed in the fossil record. They appear halfway formed between uh, transitional fossils that are halfway between terrestrial fossils. And we can follow this smoothly. There are, this is not by any means an exhaustive list of fossils, but could because there are fossils transitional between each one of these that we see. Um, As well as um, the trilobite example, there are predecessors to trilobite body forms uh, exactly where we'd expect them to be, like Dickinsonia or the Eulingia, which have a trilobite structure. They're just longer. So that is a, um, candidate for a precursor. Um, and yeah, so there, and even these organisms have precursors too. the Dickinsonia is, um, most likely related to the, um, the kind of the sea flower like organisms that are rooted to the ground. And, um, these organisms have predecessors that are worm shaped, et cetera. Um, and yeah, that's it.
0: (coughs) All right. That concludes the, uh, 10 minute uninterrupted rebuttals. Time is flying by. We are already at the hour mark and therefore the, um, the break that we usually do right before the uh, discussion, everybody's favorite part of the debate. So, David, uh, Taylor, feel free to take a five-minute break while I um, go over some announcements. Refill your coffee. Do what you got to do.
1: Thank you very much. I need the break. Go (laughs) ahead and drop my video, and I'll go get my tea to
0: drink. All right. All right. Awesome. Okay. We'll see uh, David here in just a little bit and let's go over some announcements. So actually, firstly, I've got a ton of great questions that have already come in. As always, I appreciate how engaged the audience is with these important topics and these uh, important debates. So first one, I will uh, remind everybody about since uh, Taylor is here currently. Um, He will be back here debating uh, Dr. Dino, um, technically the second round, if we consider it um, a debate in the Evolution Debate Challenge series. So uh, specifically transitional fossils, Snake was right and Dr. Dino. So that is at the end of the month here in June. Now tomorrow, guys, so get ready. We've got a much earlier debate. So uh, set those alarm clocks, get that pot of coffee going. Uh, a lot of people are thinking, one o'clock's not that uh, not that early. It's, it's earlier than usual for us for sure. So uh, one o'clock, EST, 12 Central, uh, Nick from the Planner Walk Channel, and Kent, uh, Dr. Dino, Evolution on trial. So I'm looking forward to this one. This one's been pumped for a while. I've been pumped for a while for this one. It's been scheduled for a while, I should say. So we'll see you here tomorrow at uh, 1 o'clock. Then, of course, uh, the Evolution Debate Challenge series continues. Atheist Jr. and Dr. Dino. Wade the Wizard. This one will be endgame, round three for the Evolution Debate Challenge series. Wade and um, Kent. Also, we just scheduled. This one will be huge. Uh, I believe currently this is up there with, with our most viewed debate, um, currently on the channel, uh, this one was pretty massive. So Tom jump and, uh, Kent, and they're going to have a round two. So another Epic showdown testable predictions. This one will, uh, specifically focus on, and, uh, uh, we have events pretty much scheduled every single day. I may just have to retire from sleep to get all these events in, but we're just looking for, me and Kent uh, are looking for a day to schedule this one. Uh, so hopefully we can we can fit it in somewhere in the next couple weeks. We are going to be uh, double doing double headers uh, as well just to fit all these in, guys. We want to give you the most debate-packed summer ever. On any channel and any time in any universe. <laughs> so that's what we're giving uh to you guys. So, anyways, this is gonna be refuting the credits. Um, 99% evolutionist, 1% creationist, work paleo paleologos. Peter from the Paleo Logos channel put out a video. Um, and tempting to, I guess, refute arguments that Kent put forth on the geologic column. And we're gonna be responding, it's gonna be fun, it's gonna be relaxing. And uh, Kent tells me that he is going to uh, be doing this with half his brain tied behind his back. So it's going to be a ton of fun. We just got to find a day and time to fit it in, hopefully, in the next couple of weeks. So the Geologic Column with uh, Kent Hovind and Donnie, I believe, Raw Matt. Uh, We're going to have to pull him out of retirement. And uh, I believe he's going to be joining us as well. So anyways, let's now get to some of the theology debates that are also uh, scheduled. Guys, we want to give you a good mix. Theology, soteriology, creation, evolution, philosophy, morality, uh, you know, uh, the Bible translation uh, topic. So here we go. Matt Slick will be back here. He's going to be debating John Barton uh matt slick's been a blessing uh, taylor and matt have actually debated uh probably about a year ago on morality that was a great debate so matt's been here about eight eight times maybe this will be his eighth so his oneness biblical matt slick john barton and uh, cj cox and nick sayers this is going to be a ton of fun so we've got several um king james bible bible version debates actually uh that, that i'm working on scheduling. Another one is Will Kinney and Turretin fans. So I'm in some final stages in terms of um, confirming that and setting it on the channel. So is the KJV the only legitimate English version? Again, CJ Cox, Nick Sayers, uh, both well-studied, well-educated seasoned debaters. So that one is uh, this month as well, guys. There's a ton. And I do want to remind you, we had uh, two heroic to epic uh soteriology related debates um in three days so we had one on the ninth one on the 11th this one was on the ninth. this one was huge this one's getting a ton of good feedback this debate wilkinson genus was for years uh a dream debate of mine i would tell people you know what i would pay big bucks to see wilkinson genus so it was an honor and a privilege that i actually got to host and moderate. One of my dream debates, and uh, it did not let down. It was one to remember. It was wild, tons of cross-exam, two and a half hours. It was an epic showdown. Two powerhouses in in the uh, debate world in terms of soteriology. Bob Wilkin, Robertson, Jenis, they focus on Romans 2.13 in terms of the thesis, and this uh, this took place on the 9th. Okay, so if you have not yet seen this debate, please check it out. It is up on the channel. And it is uh, ready to view for everybody. Of course, we did that one live. The other one that we did on the 11th was uh, between a uh, fan and also uh, Francis Turton and Joshua Gibbs. So they, they debated... Um, technically sanctification, degrees of sanctification, you know, can a true believer, they both held to, of course, eternal security, once saved, always saved. But the question was, you know, what's the degree of sanctification in a believer's life? And is it possible for a believer who's been justified, regenerated to um, fall away? And that was a fantastic debate. So uh, two awesome soteriology debates in three days. We've been Pumping out content for you guys. So Karen uh, Weiss, good to see you, sister. Uh, I completely agree. That was definitely a a good debate. So Thursday, um, I will also be on uh, Bread of Life's channel. We're going to be discussing uh, my book, my new book, uh, The Endogenous Retrovirus Handbook. You can see it back there. Let's see. There we go. The orange one that's the limited edition so uh, for the first week it was the number one new release so i appreciate the fact that so many people are picking it up and benefiting from it so i'm going to be doing some interviews on that i just did an interview over on kelly powers channel Uh, you can find that in the community post so that was a great interview a couple hours long and um you know he just asked me questions pertaining to uh, young earth creation evolution Age of the Earth from the Bible, things like that. Uh, I also did an interview with uh, Christopher Cernike over on uh, Christ Jesus Ministries. That was thorough. That was fun. Um, and I am told it will be released on June 25th on his channel. So I will let everybody know about that. Uh, check the description box for those interested in the endogenous retrovirus handbook. Uh, you can find it on Amazon and um If you've already purchased it and you like it i'd I'd love a review i'd really appreciate that and uh just in time just in time i think we got through uh at least some of the debates and so uh let's change this up okay Uh, i do want to inform everybody that that is still just a snapshot of the overall uh debates that we have uh going on on the channel so there's over 20 i believe events set you're not yet subscribed and you love debates, interviews, discussions, and more, please make sure to hit that subscribe button. We at Standing for Truth Ministries, we strongly believe in critical thinking. And that is exactly why we host so many debates. Because you know what, we don't want it to just be an echo chamber. We want to get together uh, individuals of different views, and uh, discuss in a sophisticated and, and cordial manner these, these important topics and hear both sides. And therefore, the audience can come to their own conclusion. Professor McQueen, good to have you back. Taylor, I'm guessing you're back as well. Cool shades, Taylor, cool shades. And uh, I think we're going to get right into it then. David, you got your tea? You're all good, brother?
1: Yes, sir. I'm ready to go. Very anxious to discuss some things with
0: Taylor. Okay. Perfect. Well, here we go. We're now into the discussion portion, 30 minutes on the clock. Lots of great uh, points brought up in the openings and uh, rebuttal. So this is the chance to discuss those in in detail, one topic at a time, and we'll try and keep it as equally timed as possible. Taylor just ended with his rebuttal. Therefore, David, let's start with you, brother. If there's a a point you wanted to make, first question, uh, so on and so forth. The floor is yours, gentlemen.
1: Yeah, let me uh, uh, let me uh, challenge uh, uh, Taylor uh, on some of the points uh, that uh, that he made, uh, and so I'll begin with this question. Um, I'm hoping that this will be a surprising question for you, uh, Taylor. I want you to explain to me why there are no lion fossils in Israel today, in uh, Israel or the west bank uh, uh if you go near jerusalem we go all the way up the coast how come we don't find lion fossils there uh, you presented argument that uh, the fossilization uh, process is more pervasive than what i see it as being in the sense of going on for a billion years uh, as i've said uh, in earlier debates with you uh, i'm unapologetic about believing the Bible being a, uh, a historical record, leading from creation up to uh, uh, the Book of Revelation. I still am not going to. I'm not going to forget about our my promise to come up with this uh, discussion about if why did God create so many things just to kill. But let me make a point, and you can prove this in secular literature, but I'll I'll use the Bible to do it. Uh, In Judges chapter 14, beginning in uh, verse 5, it says, and this is Samson, the strong man story. Samson went down to Timnah, which is uh, in uh, the Middle East, together with his father and mother. And as they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, so he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Now, we have this record from the Bible in the Old Testament that there clearly were lions in Israel uh, historically. Not many lions there today, but historically in the works of other people. Um, It's clear that there are a lot of lions there, but in my research preparing for today's debate, I could find no reference to a lion fossil in Israel. What do you make of
2: that? Well, uh, I'm not sure about lions in Israel, but I know they used to be, I think they used to be in Europe. I think I heard that somewhere. Um, So, yeah, I think that they were hunted to extinction in Europe and Middle East. So I assume that their remains were kept by humans. Um, So that would probably reduce the amount of lion fossils that that could have formed, but also fossilization is pretty rare in normal non-flood conditions. But if the entire earth was flooded, we should probably expect most, if not all, animals that weren't on the ark to be flash buried in flood mud. And so we should expect more fossils than would be expected from periods of dryness or just normal secular geology.
1: So here is the book that I want to send you if you don't have the book. It's the book from 1961, The Genesis Flood. And I just wanted to read one sentence from it, uh, Dr. Morris's viewpoint on this. Um, He's talking about uh, some oddities in the fossil record from the standpoint of creationists. And he says this, he says, The Old Testament informs us that Palestine was infested for lions, with lions, for centuries. The passage I read in Judges and then there are others. But where's the fossil evidence for their having been in Palestine? It is a well-known fact that animals leave fossil remains only under rare and special conditions. So I think you and I have found a point of agreement, haven't we? That fossilization is fairly rare and it's under special conditions. Is that a fair point of agreement?
2: Yeah, but wouldn't the... uh conditions of the global flood be very good conditions for mass fossilization
1: and I'm I'm pleased that you agree with me I, I certainly think that's true uh, I've spent enough time on that uh, it's your turn my friend ask me a question
2: all right so I'm struggling to understand what's actually proposed for the uh, the creation week or creation if it was just all created at once or created in a uh, several stages because we have different geological ages in the pre-flood rocks that show um, changing smooth transitions into certain uh, geological niches whereas At first, they, in the oldest layers, um, like the Ediacaran period, uh, there was, um, most of the ecology was in the, the mat ground under the, right under the silt layer at the bottom. Um, And then as you go on past the Precambrian and into the Cambrian, we start seeing full-on ecologies of starting to penetrate down into the dirt and the, the biomass under the ground is receding and being replaced by larger animals. Um, We're seeing full on different ecologies, but then there's transitional fossils in between those. So are you proposing everything was created all at once or? Well, um,
1: actually no, no. Uh, because I accept the Bible as a historical record and because I especially accept Genesis 1 through 11 as giving me an outline of earth history within a 6,000-year framework, when I look at how to answer your question, and I don't want to forget this slide. I want to go back to that one, your slide, but I'll go here to make my point. So you, you do have the creation week, and during the creation week, uh, these are consecutive solar 24-hour days. During the creation week, on day one, you have the formation of some granites, metamorphic rocks. On day three, that's creation week, day one, and then on day three of the creation week, you have the One World Continent rise, and there are is some erosion because nothing has been created uh, at that time. That erosion would produce some sediments, which do not uh, have fossils in them. This is exactly what we find in places like the Grand Canyon and worldwide. You very often, before you find the first group of trilobites, for example, or even the Ediacra fauna that you talked about, uh, you find uh, sedimentary rocks without fossils. Uh, as you go past the creation week, there is a pre-flood time, and then you get up to the actual flood year itself. Now, one thing I want to challenge you on—I'm curious to know what how you would respond to this—is when uh, uh, you talk about how you can see smooth transitions in the in the Cambrian from, let's say. I noticed that one of the dates that I wrote down earlier, uh, you were talking about 560 million years, some precursors to trilobites you say were found. Well, from from my viewpoint, whenever you first begin to find those trilobites, that's when uh, you begin to have the marker for the beginning of the flood. And so it is, Uh, I think uh, an aspect of your critique is wrong, that overall ecological zonation, in the sense that we generally find low in the rock record, invertebrates such as abundant uh, plesipods and gastropods, clams and snails like you see portrayed in this modern version of what you find in Florida. You do generally find those creatures low in the record. And then as you go up uh, through the different sequences from the Salk sequence up through the rest, you get to a point that's illustrated by this old National Geographic uh, diagram here. Here's a flooded interior to North America and you find dinosaur trackways from Texas all the way up into Canada, uh, in this sequence of rocks. My suggestion to you and those that are watching our presentation, is that this is best explained uh, within flood geology. And so, the transition that you're, uh, the transitional organisms that you're talking about, uh, I think do generally fit in to ecological zonation. So that would be how I would answer that critique.
2: Well, since the first trilobites appear, there are several rock layers after that that would have to have been deposited by the flood containing trilobites, and there's a smooth transition of trilobites becoming more ornate, getting spikes, um, and if they're all living in the same area, then why are they being buried in completely intact ecological formations? Okay. On top of each other. Okay. You would have to have, you know, the Fortunian as where trilobites start appearing, I think. And then you would have then going into the Cambrian, you'd have a rock layer that was fully populated Um, with animals living in the dirt on top of that, and then you have even more layers on top of that with trilobites, with things fully living in their ecology. Meanwhile, the flood is happening and rocks are rapidly lithifying underneath it.
1: Okay, let me me answer that. I challenge you on the point that when you find a, a very ornamented trilobite, It is somehow an evolved version of what you might want to consider a simple trilobite. My argument would be, based on what I have studied in paleontology, is when you find the first Cambrian trilobites uh, in units like the Tapete Sandstone, Bright Angel Shale, the Grand Canyon, in the Rome Formation of East Tennessee, and over into Wales, they appear abruptly and fully formed. In other words, the fact that it's ornamented doesn't necessarily mean that it is evolved from some simpler trilobite. And let me use trilobites to form my next challenge to you. And that is, um, is it not the case in Wales or East Tennessee or Europe that the fossil content of the rock unit allows you to determine its age so that if you do find uh, trilobites, they are associated with the Cambrian Ordovician. If you do find horse fossils, they are higher in the record. If you do find uh, fossil human skulls in Old White Gorge, that's put at the top of the record and so is it not the case that these index fossils allow the evolutionary community to pick a age cambro ordovician slurian devonian
2: i'll repeat the last sentence again
1: yeah do you do you think it's true that within evolutionary Uh, uh, geology, evolutionary biology, that if you find a trilobite in a certain sandstone, that makes that sandstone Canberra Ordovician. But if you find a T-Rex fossil, that makes it somewhere in the Mesozoic, uh, Triassic, Jurassic, or Cretaceous. In other words, do you think that There are really index fossils that are used by the evolutionary community to prove an old Earth.
2: The index fossils, I wouldn't say, are used to prove the old Earth, but there are fossils that are unique to certain layers, certainly. Um, And it correlates with the radiometric dating and Um, and the dating across different locations of the same age.
1: Well, let me, uh, uh, I won't concede the point about radiometric dating, but I would like to go to one of the things that you talked about uh, in uh, your rebuttal. Uh, You know, you asked, well, McQueen, how can it not be true that Archaeopteryx is an example of um, the transition between reptile and bird? Is it not clearly a, a creature with some teeth? Is it not clearly a creature with some feathers? And I've always enjoyed the answer that my one of my mentors, Dr. Gish, gave in the 70s and the 80s. He would be debating like we are now, and he would say, well, Taylor, uh, you have teeth and and I have teeth. There are some people in the audience that have teeth and some people in the audience that don't have teeth. False teeth were very common back in the 80s and the 90s. And so the mere fact that Archaeopteryx has teeth doesn't necessarily make it a transition between um, dinosaur and bird because there are other creatures that have uh, teeth that are also clearly birds uh, today. So I don't understand your argument based around Archaeopteryx. It appears uh, very beautifully in the limestones of of germany but how is that an evidence for the transition from dinosaur to bird
2: well it's not just in the anatomy that's completely transitional between them like whether they're related or not it is still physically a transition between a bird and a dinosaur it has features of both. Um, But it's about its placement and where it's found as well. And on top of that, the fact that it's both its anatomy and its placement were predicted before it was found using the method of evolution. And um, yeah, just going back the, its placement between the, uh, anatomical, the birds and the dinosaurs, the fact that it is there temporally between them and it is there anatomically between them are cross correlations and the fact that it was predicted means that it's scientific.
1: Well, uh, let me uh, if I may go to another point you brought up and uh, that is the point of the uh, soft tissues being found by dr switzer and then uh, replicated many times over uh since she uh, did her first uh, uh work there what's important i think in this dinosaur soft tissue argument and why this is a death blow i think to your old earth evolutionary view is the creature that it was found in was a was a truly a dinosaur. When Dr. Schweitzer walked down into the pit after the fossil had been encased and then dropped and broken and so forth, when she walked up to it, she had worked her way, I guess, in graduate school as a forensic scientist. And it, it smelled like a, a crime scene. It smelled like Death. She could actually smell the decay, and so my challenge is: uh, I do know about gertite iron hydroxide, and it's simply uh, been shown by Tim Clary and others that that will not stabilize the the uh, the, the tissue, the collagen, the hemoglobin that is found in uh, those original Dr. Schweitzer. Uh, soft tissues, it will not stabilize it over millions of years. You know, the argument I heard you gave was how Dr. Schweitzer was able to modify the chemistry around the tissue that she took back to her lab and made it last a couple of years. Well, that's, that's not the point. The point is, if this creature was, uh, was killed 90 or 100 million years ago, and it's been buried... How in the world could that soft tissue survive?
2: So okay. normally, well, tissue degrades much faster than thousands of years anyway. So it had to have yeah. some sort of chemical preservation anyway. So to just kind of arbitrarily say, well, it can, there is some chemical preservation. We don't know what it is, and it can only last up to a couple thousand years. There, well, that's speculation I, and there's I, I don't know what shows that it can only last a couple thousand years well, um, one, one part of your critique
1: was, is legitimate uh, as a young earth creationist I have a problem in figuring out how the tissue survived 4,000 years or 3,000 years but I would trade off my problem with your problem of having to explain how it lasted a 100 million years
2: well, Mary Schweitzer discovered a way of preserving with iron. And so the Gertite was probably derived from the hemoglobin iron. Um, and so the it wasn't the Gertite that was uh, preserving the flesh in Mary's model. But it's not like it only lasted two years and then it degraded. There was zero degradation after two years. So it... Stands to reason that if you can delay degradation in a room temperature lab and preserve tissues like that, again, no degradation, then we don't, we haven't run the experiment for how long that can last, but we have a mechanism for how it can be preserved better than any mechanism that was previously known and there's no reason to think that there's a hard cutoff at 4,000 years or, or whatever.
1: I think we're at an impasse on that question. So Donnie, you want to lead us to how much more time do we have for the open
0: exchange? It's a good question. Um, We have exactly, exactly six minutes. So if there's any other points or arguments that were,
1: I want Taylor to go and, and give me a, Give me something to worry about, please.
2: Well, I've forgotten my rebuttal, I think, to go back over the uh, the upright fossils. So you described the trees at Mount St. Helens being able to uh, be buried in an upright fashion, but that doesn't address the delicate root systems that were preserved in many of the upright fossil polystrate trees that were actually found uh, as fossils.
1: Okay, let me give a a response to that critique. There's a place in Middle Tennessee where you really can go and see the sandstone layers. And there is a polystrate tree there with a a root system. Uh, And then this is the top of the cliff here. Well, my argument would focus there. The mere fact that you can find a delicate structure preserved in a uh, tree fossil that if you're using the present as the key to the past, the trees decay very quickly. Not only would this whole unit have to be catastrophically buried, but I would say the fact that there is a... A routine, uh, not a routine, but a very delicate root structure would be further evidence of a rapid burial. Because uh, if it were not buried in this mass, which is, it can be explained in catastrophic uh, flood geology, um, you wouldn't find anything at all. So I think this is actually a better argument for my viewpoint than yours, Taylor.
2: Well, the problem is there are catastrophic events in uh, secular geology, and so that's fine. It's not a, it's not hard to explain that. But the problem with the upright fossils with young Earth is that these are occurring mid-flood layers. So the flood layers would have had to have been deposited, and then large, huge trees would have had to have grown in the, the middle of a flood while being dumped upon and being underwater and having their delicate roots preserved in place while this violent flood is going on.
1: No, I, the reason that I think you're having a problem is illustrated by this paper towel roll. This is an example. I was talking in preparing for the debate. I called Dr. Gary Parker, and he said, "When you when you debate Taylor, uh, challenge him on the issue of looking at only one piece rather than the big picture." And so, let me use this as an example to draw uh, why you are wrong about your vision of how these Middle Tennessee. Um, floating mats of vegetation got there. So in the early part of the flood, we have the breakup of the one world continent. And so we have huge masses of vegetation. And for our purposes right now, let's say that we got a vegetation mass that's meters thick and covers the entire state of Pennsylvania, for example, a huge uh, mat of, uh, of debris So this begins to be moved by the floodwaters to the south toward what will end up being Tennessee. And then as the uh, plate collisions uh, occur and we have this tremendous tectonic activity, these plants get transported and buried in Tennessee. So it's not as if these have to grow in the units there in Middle Tennessee, where you find them, they were transported there and buried catastrophically. So,
2: but this to, this doesn't seem to be addressing the the roots because the trees were actually rooted in place in mid-flood layers.
1: No, that's actually not true. I in in my study of the work that austin has done in this very stratigraphic area the uh there may be some root system there but it's not as if that it's growing into a soil that you can break out and classify that as a soil if there's any evidence of that sort of thing it goes back to these words i taught you earlier of a loxiness deposition where the plant material has moved a great distance versus autoxinous, where it's grown in place in an ancient swamp environment or something. Um,
0: I'm afraid we've run out of time, Donnie. Great job, gentlemen. We've got exactly 30 seconds left. So what we'll do is wrap it up there. And uh, I got to say, wow, (laughs) time flew by. Uh, This was a very engaging and uh, cordial discussion. You both made my job incredibly easy. I didn't have to step in once. So very, um, very respectful debate. I appreciate that. Very easy to moderate. So, okay, what we're going to do here as I um, as I gather all of the uh, questions um, and kind of organize them, we had a ton come in. And uh, what I'm going to do is have you both do your concluding statements before we get into the audience questions. So, David, you did start with uh, your opening statement. So why don't we start with you then? Uh, We do have five minutes.
1: Okay, good. I'll uh, set my timer because the issue that um, Taylor and I are debating is a very important issue when it comes to What does evolution mean? What do fossils mean? My argument about why this is so important, as a Christian, should always start with uh, God's word. And so, as we go to uh, to Scripture and talk about fossils and the age of the Earth, I think about the passage in Second Peter, chapter three, and the verses that are talked about there begin with verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this promise, this coming, he promised. And then notice what it says, written years and years before any European geologist came up with the idea of the present is the key to the past. Notice what it says. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And so that's the present is the key to the past. And then notice the next passage, it says. um, The next part of it says, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. That's your creation. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And that Greek word means a catastrophe, just like we've been talking about. But then if you drop down to verse uh, 8, you read, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like today. The, the Lord is not slow in, in keeping his promise. He will return uh, in the future. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Peter, when he wrote this, was an intelligent man in the Greek language and in other parts of Scripture. There are words for uh, hundreds of thousands, millions, myriads, talking about angels and other things. And so why did he choose the word thousand there? Because it was the easiest division of a 6,000-year-old earth. Now, Taylor asked a very important question, and that is, why did God create creatures that he ended up destroying at the time of the the great flood? And so the question uh, that Taylor has posed is the same question that the rabbis asked. I'm sorry, the rabbis were asked at the end of World War II, after the concentration camps were liberated, the uh, observant Jews would ask the rabbi, you were at Auschwitz, where was God at Auschwitz? And the rabbinical answer that I think is excellent, that's not the correct question. The correct question is where was man in Auschwitz? Man had been corrupted and evil. How had he been corrupted and become evil? Well, the young people that were in German schools in the 20s and 30s were exposed to uh, evolutionary theory as if it were a fact. And so when they reached a point in their education, people said, oh, the fossil record supports the idea of evolution. And, you know, by measuring the dimensions of a person's nose, we can tell whether they're fully Aryan or not. And so we can see that this person deserves to be selected out to use the Darwinian vocabulary or the German word is Vernichtungslager, a camp where you exterminate, you take something that it was and make nothing of it. So the issues that we're debating here are not over simply does Girtite iron hydroxide allow you to preserve soft tissues, but it goes to the core of what is man according to creation, what is man according to evolution. Thank you for your attention.
0: Perfect timing, uh, David McQueen again. I do have to say great debate, uh, Taylor and David. I appreciate all the prep you both did, and I appreciate you guys keeping it uh, cordial and very intellectual. So uh, Snake was right. We're going to hand it over to you. You get a five-minute concluding statement, and then we are going to get into some of these a uh, 1,000 questions that came in. So, okay, Taylor, go ahead. Five minutes.
2: All right. So um, I guess I'll start off with the final question of what is man according to evolution. Well, we're still humans. And its I don't think it matters where we came from or what intended anything for us. I think it matters what we are. And what we are is the same whether we're the product of evolution or the product of a god, which is human beings with all our capabilities and our history and relationships. Um, So I think our value is the same. So the other thing was the present is the key to the past. And while that might seem flippant or just not satisfactory to some, this is the best that we have. So basically we can study things in the present, and we can see how they work. And yes, there is a bit of assuming that things used to work the same, but there's also no reason to think that they don't work the same. Um, but more importantly is that is simply all the information we have. We don't have information on how things used to be um, or h- how, you know, physics and chemistry used to work. We have information on how it works now, and it never changes. So, Um, that's all we have on the flip side is we have pure speculation about how it used to work. We have no data. We do have data on how it works. Now we do not have data for how it used to work. All we have is speculation. Like we saw speculation about vegetation mats, uh, plucking up entire forests and reburying them with their roots intact somehow. Um, But uh, let me, I'm just going to share screen real quick again. Um, But these fossils were buried with uh, the forest floor intact. So it's not just the trees. It's not just their roots in the middle of flood layers that are supposedly being laid down over the course of a year while giant lycopods are growing in the space of a year, um, yes, this is based on currently known tree growth, but if we're going to just speculate that trees can just spring into giant trees underwater while they're being dumped mud on in the middle of a year, this is just pure speculation. Um, This is not science. This is not observable. So the roots, again, were preserved rather well and delicately. Uh, There's also a smooth transition in the fossil record before and after the flood. And um, I would like to point out uh, some of the precursors to trilobites, Uh, the bilaterians, occur right where we'd expect them to be and we see trilobites before and after the flood layers so this all contradicts the idea of uh trilobites being you know the signal of the flood because trilobites would be buried first but we have entire ecologies where the trilobites would be buried by flood waters and flood muds and Then we have entire ecosystems developing on top of that with uh, essentially forests of these uh, immobile animals and um, burying into the ground and creating an ecology for themselves. All while this flood is happening, and this happens over and over and over, all during a flood, a violent flood, Uh, we have a very smooth transition of planktons as well. And that leads me back into my point about planktons. They're only found um, as freshwater or saltwater, not mixed. Um, The sheer volume of plankton that would have had to exist makes no sense uh, with the flood model of things. And uh, there is the fact that this ecological sorting makes no sense because there are different ecologies preserved within the same strata. Meanwhile, you have repeated ecologies, like with repeated trilobites. And um, so this shows a bunch of um, animals dying off in the Precambrian times, but the Claudinomorphs actually span these different times. So we don't have an actual pattern. It's based on speculation. Um, None of this is observable science. um, And the flood model just even with all the speculation, just still does not fit the available data.
0: All right, just on time. You both are a couple of pros, a moderator's dream. You both come in prepped. You keep it cordial, sophisticated, and uh, just on time. So I almost don't even need to be here, although someone's got to gather the questions, and that's what we're about to get into. So We appreciate you, Donnie. We appreciate you. (laughs) I appreciate it. I appreciate it, David and uh, Taylor. I look forward to re-listening to this after you guys brought up and discussed a ton of great points. So for anybody uh, who's new to this channel, this is technically uh, Chapter 2 in terms of uh, David and Taylor's uh, debate. So they've debated months ago, and uh, this was Chapter 2, and it was a lot of fun. Um, And I want to say, you know, and and I mean it, we have the best audience around. I mean, we always get so many questions uh, that we could literally do Q&A for 10 hours. So as I said in the beginning, though, I'm going to limit it. I'm going to put a timer on. Uh, But seriously, I I do thank the audience for being so into these debates and a lot of side debates going on, of course, too. So here we go. Let's get right to the uh, first question. I do want to thank Uh, Those that sent in super stickers and super chats, you guys are the life and blood of this channel. So God bless you. I appreciate the support. Okay, here we go. First one that came in uh, from James Lyons. Now what we do, as you both know, you've been here a ton of times, whoever the question is for, we'll make sure they get the last word and then that way we can move on smoothly. So first question comes in from James Lyons, Professor M, Professor McQueen. How would you explain mud cracks? Wet sediment must have dried in the sun, then covered to turn to rock. This is impossible if all sediment was deposited at the same time. Okay. Uh, If you've been to the field,
1: uh, you have seen uh, some uh, sedimentary rocks that have uh, either pentagonal or hexagonal shape uh, cracks in them that uh appear to be uh uh, the kind of cracks that you see in a desert area and so they're called mud cracks and the the assumption is that these had to have been formed in a desert environment and then buried work done by john Mackay, a flood geologist in australia has shown that this structure, this appearance of a mud crack uh, can be formed within a uh, wet sediment environment. That these are not uh, cracks formed by uh, drying out in the sun but rather are cracks that are formed because of the movement within the sedimentary layer, perhaps even the chemistry of the uh, of the layer. Um, and so the answer to your question is that you're wrong because it didn't dry out in the sun. There's more than one way to get a geometric shape like that. What do you think, Taylor?
0: Taylor, over yeah. to you.
2: Well, yeah, I would like to look into that. Uh, See whether it's the fully geometric uh, shapes or whether it's just cracks that can form underwater. But there's plenty of ge- geological features that have to for, uh, form in dry and arid conditions. There's just certain minerals that form that way. There, I think the Coconino sandstone has the type of rippling that occurs in sand dunes and not underwater dunes. Um, so that, yeah, that that's one of the things I t- touched briefly on. There's just too many geological features that couldn't form underwater or in flood conditions. And
0: so I can make a follow-up comment, Donnie? Absolutely, Professor McQueen. You get the final word.
1: Yeah, the... Um... The issue of the of sandstone and the uh, formation of the footprints there and whether it's a, a, uh, a dune on the surface of the earth or an underwater dune, quite a bit of work has been done by one of my former uh, students, a fellow named John Whitmore. Uh, And so I would suggest that you uh, Google him and look at some of his papers. Um, Donnie, I'll need to provide you with some references to attach to this debate. Uh, Can I do that tomorrow?
0: Absolutely. Any references, papers, anything like that that you both want to send me for the description box, let me know. And um, I have no problem adding those. Okay, here's the next question. And let me get it up on screen. This one comes in from SWE, putting my kids through college, $10 super chat. I appreciate it. Question is for Professor McQueen. So she asks, "Oklahoma dinosaur bones of the Morrison formation show weathering, degradation of ligaments, etc. So their corpses remained on the surface for years. Does this mean the flood wasn't the culprit?" Okay, um,
1: let me uh, dig out of my box of examples here. A uh, snapping turtle fossil uh, from Louisiana. Fossil, I'm sorry. Skull from Louisiana. This is a modern, I think it's called an alligator snapping turtle. Uh, this is the upper part, mandible and so forth be down here. Let's imagine this. um As a dinosaur fossil from the Morrison Formation, I've actually found uh, broken bits of dinosaur bones in the Morrison Formation during my field work in the 1960s and 70s. So I know the exact formation you're talking about. Imagine this to be be moving in a column. And I'll use this marble here as an example, one of my grandchildren's marbles. Imagine this to be a pebble. The dinosaur bone is moving in the column of the floodwaters. It's being struck and hit. Those impacts would appear to be uh, weathering if you uh, didn't know any better. If you accept the flood model, that pounding and beating can explain uh, that. Now, the fact that the ligaments are torn up but yet preserved well enough to know that there were ligaments, that goes back to my foundational argument, that that dinosaur bone appears abruptly and fully formed. It's got ligaments in it, as you would expect it to, because it's been designed by God and is an example of creative design. So that's the fully formed part. The abruptness would be a catastrophic environment. What do you think of that, uh, friend Taylor? As an alternative explanation.
2: Well, as I am not a paleontological expert, I would have to defer to the experts. But they seem to think that they they can tell the difference between impacts and um, exposed erosion. And there's there's disarticulation, fragmentation, uh, abrasions. Uh, bio-erosion, corrosion, uh, crushing, and exposure erosion. And they're able to categorize the, the differences between these things. And a lot of these things are found in the same area, which begs the question of why... Um, well, it doesn't beg the question. It brings up the question of why, how a single event could explain this and the in particular the one the uh, exposure to dry arid environment weathering uh, is particularly incompatible with flood geology but i again i defer to the experts on that for how they tell the difference that's what i think yeah okay and my my response
1: My response to his critique is this. The uh, slide that he put up showing the different sorts of damage that can be done to a bone uh, like this, I would suggest every one of those categories can be equally explained by a catastrophic flood lasting uh, 12 months. I'm trying to understand how best to explain in future debates to tailor the whole flood model. And I think one of the mistakes that he and others are making is that they're imagining uh, a group of rocks that are formed in a couple of months of the flood and then creatures walk across that and die and are exposed to arid uh, conditions. Well, that, that is ridiculous. You can't explain that. You can't have a situation like that in a worldwide flood uh you can't have months of exposure and so forth and so my counter argument is that the abrasions and so forth can be explained by impacts and abrasion during the flood
0: thank you very much for the uh Answers there, Taylor and David. Okay, so here's the next one. This one comes in from uh, Dustin Buck for Steve McQueen. So um, I, I think there's been a few um, mutations in your first name, uh, David. Well, and it, it turns out,
1: since she made that mistake, uh, Steve McQueen is actually my fifth cousin uh, going back. Uh, his grandfather and my grandfather both came over from Scotland. One ended up being famous. On the big screen, I'm now famous on the little screen here. For standing <laughs> here. Go ahead. That's right. That's All, right. Steve McQueen that's, is a, dir- a that's
0: director. That's actually true. Right? But go ahead. I know who he's talking about. Let's say <laughs> what the question is. So a question for Steve McQueen, if you could pass it on to Steve later, David, just kidding. Okay. Yeah. So question for David McQueen at staying for truth. Thank you, Dustin Buck. Can you reconcile the vast inconsistent depth of the fossils record fossil record? If a flood would be the culprit, wouldn't we see a more uniform death?
1: Okay. And I, not death, but depth, I guess would be the question, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's explore that. Um, and um, see how we would want to approach that. Let me erase the board here. And so the the question is, would the worldwide flood produce at any point a mixture between terrestrial and marine creatures? And it does at certain points. You can find a mixture of... uh, 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 fossils, invertebrate fossils with uh, vertebrate fossils. So there is some mixing. But the question focuses on the issue of depth and thickness of of units. And so let's go to uh, a couple of the uh, areas that we've talked about already. Let's go to the Grand Canyon. And in the Grand Canyon, I have hiked it uh, five times in four years. So I've actually gone down and um, seen the Cambrian and I've seen the Coconino Sandstone near the top. Now in preparation for the debate, I called my friend, Dr. Gary Parker, who lives in Florida. And he said, McQueen, one thing you say is wrong. You say, well, fossils are rare or rare because David McQueen didn't see them in the five times that he hiked the Grand Canyon. It turns out my friend Gary Parker did. Now, why? Uh, He uh, has a focus on paleontology. Plus, in the early years of his marriage, he and his wife spent a tremendous amount of time in the fossil rich beds of the central part of Mecca, Iowa, Indiana, uh, all that area. And so he could recognize pieces that I missed. So even though I didn't see them, I know that they're Cambrian, and then this is the Coconino Sandstone here. If you go north of the Grand Canyon, you get into the uh, fossil beds of the Morrison Formation. Now, why would there be consistent thickness in those two in a flood model? The reason is, as the enormous waves that were generated by the tectonic events of the Great Flood would create the movement of vast quantities of sediment around the Earth. That sediment is operating under physics. There's not a miracle occurring right at that moment. And so the amount of water and the amount of sand, silt and clay that they could contain it's not surprising at all from the standpoint of sedimentology and physics that these layers would be fairly consistent in, um, in, uh, thickness. Now I will add in a different color here, the fact that if you look at these units over a broad distance, you do have a word that you've heard Taylor use tonight, the word facies, You do, as you go uh, around, not around, as you go to the east and west and north of these formations, you do not always find the Morrison formation of an equal thickness because of this, what's called facies
0: variation. Back to you, Taylor. David, appreciate the answer. Taylor, over to you for your response.
2: Yeah, um... I would just say I would expect uh, ubiquitous mixing of marine and terrestrial fossils to kind of go off the beginning of that comment. Um, and I, I hope this isn't considered cheating here, but I'd like to add back to the previous question that uh, the erosion occurs only at the, the top of the partially buried bones, and I think that's one of the ways they can tell the difference between the impacts. Um, I, ju- I just remembered that as he was answering as he was giving the final word. So, yeah.
0: Thank you, Taylor. And David, over to you for the final word.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to cheat just like my friend Taylor has cheated. I'll go back to the, to the thing. If you imagine the dinosaur bone being transported in a softer version. Well, that's not a good example. Taylor and I have talked about Play-Doh in the past and how I view this uh, child's toy to be a a more adequate uh, example of how uh, uh, material is moved during the time of the flood. You can see where a dinosaur bone like this could have been partially embedded in a, a moving stream of water and this soft sediment. And so the impacts of the marbles would hit
0: above that eye socket, not below it. Gentlemen, appreciate the engagement on that question. Okay, we got one for you now, Taylor. So this one comes in from Jacob Ostapoix. Hopefully I said that right. $20 Super Chat, appreciate it. And um, short and sweet question for you, Taylor. How is a bird a better option for evolution rather than a bigger dinosaur
2: because bigger is not always better and like you should know that just from the fact that if you take the creationist account god created smaller animals and they have their place in the world so bigger is not always better um, as for why specifically bigger is not always better Um, They have to eat a lot more food and they have they themselves have a heat problem. (laughs) They have to regulate their heat uh, because they're bigger. Um, It's harder to escape predators, but there were the dinosaurs that evolved into birds were already smaller dinosaurs. So it was actually an improvement for them because they could then climb up trees and fly from tree to tree Um, It wasn't like a T-Rex became a sparrow and just was competing with T-Rexes, but it also depends on the environment. So if it's a little dinosaur in a forest, it's going to get a competitive advantage against the other little dinosaurs and maybe some larger predators. If it has feathers and can escape those predators, sometimes it's best to evolve much smaller so you can hide under things or burrow much easier to get away from predators. So there's a lot of things to consider there.
0: Thank you, Taylor. Over to you, David. Okay. Uh, Taylor has
1: challenged me to have my answers based on data and facts. So here's some uh, data that uh, John Woodmorope, his actual name is Jan Pech- Pechkus, uh, uh tabulated back in the 90s. Let's look at the number of creatures by uh, genera and their weight that were buried during the time of the flood. The data that uh, Jan Petchkus came up with was that uh, 869 genera, think of a hummingbird about that size, uh, weigh less than 10 grams. 2,343 genera, think of a rat about that size, weigh somewhere between 10 and 100 grams. Um, Now let's switch to the English system when we get up to bigger creatures. There are about 258 uh, genera of creatures that are between one ton and 10 tons in weight. A hippo would be an example. But there are only 53 genera of uh, creatures that are truly large between 10 and 100 tons and again we can think of a dinosaur as that example and so from a, a creationist standpoint where these creatures were created most of the creatures that were destroyed during the time of the flood and most of the creatures that were especially on board the ark were not in the category of gastropods and plesipods, like my chart shows. These are the creatures that were uh, uh, size range actually on board the ark. But it it bears to the question of whether bigger is necessarily better. Um, From a creationist standpoint, God created the ecological niches that the animals, plants, and invertebrates ended up in all those years after creation and so there was a
0: design factor there appreciate it david uh, taylor question was for you get the last word
2: well i think there was some touching on how animals are sorted in the flood um, there's large and small animals in every single stratum uh, i went over how the uh, the benthic plankton are found in every single stratum, which, um, given if these organisms were all existing at the same time, they should be buried ex- almost exclusively with the trilobites and the early trilobites, because even the way trilobites are buried doesn't make sense under a flood model. Um, the phytoplankton, which are at the top, uh, are found ubiquitously in every stratum. So... This idea of uh, hydrological sorting doesn't make sense Um, and the size of the animal that survives the flood doesn't seem to bear any difference because everything was wiped out like that was the point of the flood everything was wiped out anyway Um, maybe the whales could have survived but again in the planktonic bath I don't think anything would have survived anyway Um, Yeah, hopefully that answers david's response
1: and donnie can i interrupt with a comment here do i show that we're uh past the two hour mark now
0: oh yeah yeah we are past the two hour mark so with um, your permission
1: i'd like to take one more question and then uh, you and snake can crawl through the night together uh, and, and talk as long as you want to. Uh, but I would like to take one more that he could respond to.
0: Absolutely. What we'll do is uh, get to the final super chat. So we do like to make sure we get to the super chats as those are uh, donations with a question. And then we're going to wrap it up, guys, because we're going to be coming up at the two and a half hour mark uh, very shortly. So I do appreciate both of your time. And here we go. So last one comes in again from uh, SWE, $5 super chat. And question is for you, David. So uh, she asks, what about pre-Cambrian Archean fossils? entrapped in chert. Is that how you say that, uh, David? Chert? It's a chert. Yes, that's correct. Chert, which is a chemical precipitate with tiny interlocking grains and our primary deposits.
1: Okay. Uh, Taylor and I certainly understand that vocabulary, but let's make sure that everybody else does too. Um, when you talk about the... Precambrian fossils that are uh, found in just a few places on Earth. Uh, these are Ediacaran fossils, and so forth. in In these localities uh, in Australia, in Canada, and other places, you find uh, clear-cut Cambrian trilobites here. And then I'll draw a tree up here, so you can see we're going down and down through a cross section here. And then you find some uh, fossils that I would be willing to debate as to whether they are transitional to the Cambrian trilobites. But her question has to do with the uh, lithology of these things. These creatures are for are encased. Some of them. And I'll use the red here to illustrate chert, which is SiO2. From a flood geology standpoint, this is just yet one more microfossil. Well, some of them are macrofossils that are uh, buried uh, during the time of the flood. Because of my interest in the geochemistry of the flood waters. How do I get SiO2 to come out of solution and, and, cav- and cover these things? They don't have to be uh, encased uh, in uh, microcrystalline quartz on the surface of, of some uh, landform, but rather, if you vary the temperature, the pressure, the pH, the EH, the partial pressure of CO2, the partial pressure of SiO4 in solution, you could directly precipitate that. So what do you think of that geochemical argument there, Taylor?
2: Uh, not, I got nothing to add.
0: Okay. I like it. I don't know if, uh, David, you want a final word, but that... Uh, oh, no.
1: I, uh, I'm i saving my voice to uh, straighten Taylor out on Star Wars issues at the end. We're going to save that. For
0: <laughs> hey, maybe Round well, 3 uh, game will be uh, something related to Star oh, Wars. No. Let's, <laughs> let's go on before I pass out here. I, I,
2: am, I am looking for someone to debate on the, whether the prequels, the quality of the prequels, of course.
1: Oh, well, that's, uh, you found your man there. Right. <laughs> See, I, I, love, I love 4, 5, and 6, but
0: I don't like 1, 2, and 3. But
1: we'll go on. You have to be a Star Wars fan to understand this.
0: Well, Let's you know what? We've, de- We've decided on what uh, endgame round three debate could be. Okay, gentlemen, thank you so much. Uh, we did go over time, but uh, wow, I got to say, at least as a moderator, time has flown by. Uh, I look forward to re-listening to this a bit later. Great job to the both of you. Again, very easy to moderate and so many uh, fantastic points discussed. These are very important debates and I appreciate you both being they willing are. to engage these topics. Let's do some final words. Uh, David, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, final words, final thoughts.
1: Well, I, I very much appreciate the fact that that Taylor, as he thinks about this, thinks about a theological side of it as well as um, the old earth evolutionary view, I would recommend to Taylor and the others, this book that I've recently discovered uh, by Huxley, I'm sorry, about Huxley. uh, Desmond refers to him as, he, he made the transition from devil's disciple to evolution's high priest. So let me read one comment that he makes about fossils uh, as he uh, became such a spokesman for Charles Darwin. Um, And this from a biologist who had insisted that evolutionists had to go back on their claims with title deed fossils. Back in the 1800s, title deed fossils meant uh, what we were talking about earlier as being index fossils. But notice what Huxley said here. Uh, or what the biographer said about Huxley. Huxley was very good with the logic, but Owen, and this is referring to uh, Richard Owen, a famous paleontologist, Huxley had the logic, but Owen had the fossils. Actually, Owen's image was much fuzzier. He believed that the erect standing dinosaurs approached the mammalian grade too. So this is an argument um, between an advocate of Darwinian evolution, who didn't understand everything about it, but became very popular, as he argued, in Victorian England. Um, And so we need to continue to study. And I want you to know, um, Taylor, that I've written down uh, and we'll go back to some of the, uh, fossil transitions that you have, uh, presented. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Uh, Professor McQueen, again, thanks for giving us your time. Uh, nearly two and a half hours of your time. I appreciate it. Uh, Snake was right. Final thoughts, final words. Thank you for doing this.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, uh, David for talking with me again and, uh, check out my debate channel, Debate Cafe, we are looking for debaters and uh, we can assign random topics or you can come with a topic that you want to have. And, and so yeah.
1: the, the name of it is
2: Cafe, Like a Place You Go Drink Coffee? Yep. Debate Cafe? Yep.
0: I like it already.
2: The channel was formerly Star Wars Cafe, but it was converted. <laughs>
0: All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, again, thanks so much. I'm gonna let you both get out of here. As always, I'm gonna stick around for three or four minutes just to go over okay, again good. some announcements. Good Reminders.
1: night to the two of you. I'll be the first one
0: to or over here. <laughs> okay. All right, Taylor, All right. thanks again for doing this. And uh, we'll we'll chat soon. All right. There we go. Again, it's just you and me as in uh, the audience. And uh, again, another one in the books. Uh, We're coming close to 190 debates hosted and moderated here on Standing for Truth Ministries. Um, Perhaps we've set a record. I'm not sure. But if you're a debate addict and uh, also you love lectures, discussions, videos, uh, review videos, just just a whole bunch of... um, things, uh, just make sure you're subscribed, hit the like button, hit the notification bell um, and uh, share around this content, the truth. And of course, critical thinking is is so important. So uh, that being said, we've pretty much got an event set nearly every single day uh, in the summer. And uh, the days we don't have events set, we'll probably be doing um, some behind the scenes work, setting more events for you guys. So we want to give you endless content And uh, endless content is only possible because of our amazing supporters. And so if you'd like to uh, support Standing for Truth Ministries full time so we can keep pumping out full time content and doing full time research, writing books, so on and so forth. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month on Patreon or just uh, one-time donations over our website, standingfortruthministries.com. Currently, when I'm not hosting or moderating endless debates here, I am currently working on the uh, updated and expanded edition of Special Creation. This is going to be uh, packed with content, nearly 200 pages And I'm hoping uh, to have it done in the next uh, few weeks. We'll see how it goes. Um, But this is going to have, uh, you know, technical papers from 2022 on mutation rates and evidence for a literal Adam and Eve. And of course, uh, refuting the critics. When it comes to the endogenous retrovirus handbook, the one that is currently available is, and Benjamin did a fantastic job, the limited edition. So if you haven't yet picked it up, Pick it up. It's worth it. I promise you yeah, link should be in the uh, description box. And, um, you know, it, it's been a good start for the IRV uh, handbook, for the endogenous retrovirus handbook, because the critics have uh, spoken and, and they failed essentially. So what I'm seeing is the arguments uh, put forth by these critics um, of, of this book are uh, mostly just addressed right in the book. So these arguments about, uh, you know, shared endogenous retroviruses, you know, these ERV sequences found in corresponding positions that form hierarchies addressed in the book. Why do these ERV sequences resemble viral genetic material addressed in the book? uh, you know, the critics are claiming it's, it's not the ERV unit that's functional. It's just certain aspects of it addressed in the book. Oh, you know, it's not just, it's just one or two or maybe a dozen max ERV sequences that are functional. Majority are still junk addressed in the book. Uh, you know, I can only find, you know, a couple of papers, uh, suggesting function and ERV sequences debunked in the book. So the critics are really good at, um, you know, repeating arguments that are just directly addressed in the book. So anyways, though, I I am working at a refuting critics edition, refuting the critics edition, where I do go into detail on on some of these things as uh, the book. You know, I wanted to kind of cap it at 173 pages. So uh, when will that be released? You know, I've got a good chunk of it done, but at the end of the day, I'm not in a huge rush for it since, um, the responses so far have been, as Dr. Nathaniel Jensen kind of puts it, a gift to creation science. That's what he's been saying about his book, Traced, a gift to creation science, and it's very true. So anyways, you know, stay tuned for that. And another video that, um, you know, I just spoke to Kent today over text, Uh, we are getting together, Uh, you know, Kent, myself, and I believe Matt, Uh, we are going to be, uh, refuting a video put out by, uh, 99% evolutionist, 1% young earth creationist, work salvationist, Peter from the paleo Locos YouTube channel. Uh, you know, he's, he's giving us great material as well, just like the evolutionists. So we, we appreciate it. You know, the, um, the, the critics pop up and, and, and we have some fun with it. So the geologic column and, uh, Kent informs me that, uh, you know, we are going to have some fun with this and uh, he's going to be refuting some arguments uh, with half his brain tied behind his back. So anyways, real quick, I'm going to go through some of the events Uh, before this one, though. We do have a Mark Mark Reed. He's going to be back here taking the challenge. Uh, T-Jump versus Dr. Dino. This is going to be fun. Uh, We got Matt Slick coming up versus uh, John Barton on his Oneness Biblical. Kelly Powers is going to be back here debating Taylor Stewart on uh, Unitarianism. We got some Bible translation debates for you. Right here is C.J. Cox and Nick Sayers. I'm also in uh, the final stages of confirming uh, Will Kinney and I believe Francis Turritan. So that's going to be a ton of fun as well. Snake was right. It's going to be back here. Uh, leading evolutionist in the debate world, uh, definitely. So he's up there in in the evolutionist side in terms of debates. Uh, Him and Kent, Transitional Fossils. Wade the Wizard in Kent, Endgame. Kent, and atheist junior. Kent's going to be at 300 debates in no time. And here we go. Tomorrow, bright and early, 12 p.m. in the afternoon, Central that is, uh, 1 p.m. EST, Nick from the Planner Walk YouTube channel. Uh, He's got a fairly large YouTube channel and following. Uh, I believe he collaborates sometimes with Simon Dan. Uh, the reason why it's so early is because his time zone is, is uh, way different. So he's in the future. So Kent and a planner walk, that'll take place on um, tomorrow at, at one, my time. Uh, I'm also doing a podcast. So, you know, I've, I've done nearly 100 formal debates, but with all the moderating I'm doing and just the hosting and the books and all this stuff, it's hard for me to actually personally do the formal debates these days. So I'm doing like a podcast series where I get uh, people of differing views just to come on and and we have a chat. So it's more free flowing rather than a uh, formal debate. And I'm currently corresponding with a few evolutionists to join me. Uh, Ken Rock joined me a few weeks ago for for this podcast. And I gotta say that was a, a ton of fun. So I also wanna remind everybody uh, I would say the, uh, the best debate on soteriology that, that you can find. Um, this was a debate between two powerhouses in the world of soteriology. They have both written on it extensively, debated on it extensively. And so, um, you know, we, we had them debate and this was one to remember. Wilkins and Janice, if you have not yet seen it, it was intense, intense. It, it was just, it was nonstop, very thorough and just packed. Um, Yes. So also, I must say, we um, I get a ton of requests that that come in in terms of topics, and so that's why you know uh, it's very helpful when I do uh, get um, requests from. Like, for example, there's a few requests for like dinosaurs and man topic in terms of debates, Bible translation debate. So I've got several uh, proponents of the KJV, KJV only who are looking for um, those that aren't KJV only, right, to debate the Bible translation issue. So I've had uh, people step up and that helps me because it's not always easy, you know, uh, matching up debaters. So, you know, there's plenty of topics that uh, if you're interested in um, debating, let me know. Give me an email. Give me a shout. We'll set you up. uh, Topics, obviously, the Evolution Debate Challenge series, of course. So if you're interested in debating that topic, let me know. The Bible translation uh, debate, let me know. Uh, Calvinism, soteriology, theology, dispensationalism, um, whatever it is, let me know shoot me an email and i'll do my best to set you up because for the summer uh we are having some double header nights um michael who says sure yeah even some tag team debates would be cool i've been thinking about panel debates where we do like you know we'll get a trinitarian in here a unitarian and and a oneness proponent and we'll have like a three-way kind of panel discussion type thing so i'm always up for ideas you know i'm just constantly thinking about ideas for uh, content, debates, discussions, things like that. So um, I'm open to suggestions and and recommendations. We want to make this a fun summer. And, um, you know, we're we're close to hitting 10,000 subscribers, guys. So help us out. And hopefully when we do hit the 10,000 subscriber mark, we'll have a really, really fun open mic on all sorts of Cool topic. So, again, leave your info, desired debate topic. And then the more uh, requests I get, the more people who leave their info, then it's going to be a lot easier for me to um, start setting people up uh, for debates. Right. So, anyways, I think that's about it. That's pretty much it that, that comes to mind. I want to thank everybody again for um, their super chats. Bubblegum Gun. Appreciate it. Uh, Redefined Living says a Royal Rumble. Yeah. Let's get a bunch of YECs bunch of uh, evolutionists in here and uh, let the Royal Rumble uh, begin. Heck, uh, that sounds like it'd be a, to- a ton of fun. Okay, so I think that's pretty much it that comes to mind. Uh, tons of debates and still that's only a snapshot of the overall uh, events that we do have for uh, for the summer. So uh, tons for people to look forward to. Make sure you're subscribed, pass around this content and uh, going right back to tonight, uh snake was right and professor david mcqueen they really did a a fantastic job tonight uh this was a really really good debate so that being said i am out to eat some dinner and uh refuel on coffee um and till we meet again which will be tomorrow at one est god bless everybody